Luke chapter 14, if you would. Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Luke 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he had laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And the answer is it can't. It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that last phrase is where I'd like to start tonight. Because it doesn't happen very often in the Bible. In the Gospels, Jesus is the only one who uses it. He uses it four different times, two of them in the Gospel of Luke, in three different circumstances. The first time, and by the way, he always says this statement at the end of something difficult that he's telling people. In the parable of the soils, which is one place as he uses it, which is in Luke chapter 8 in, in our Gospel tonight, he tells them about all the different soils and how the soils don't take root and only the last one bears fruit. And at the end of it, with all the soils that ended up not being fruitful and only the one did, he says, if you have ears to hear, then hear. Basically, he also says, let me tell you who John the baptizer is. He's the one Elijah that was to come, if you can see him as that. And if you understand who he is, then you'll understand who I am. And then he says, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. The third one, the only three times Jesus says it, is the one in our text. It's about discipleship and some, some of the most important things Jesus would say. In fact, he might put them at the top of the list. One of them, followed by this statement, is about discipleship. And so what he's going to say to us tonight is paramount. There's not very many more things in the Gospels that are recorded that Jesus said that are much more important than this one. And so he would say tonight, if you have ears to hear... Let him hear. The only other time this phrase is used is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 at the end of every exhortation to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Every one of those seven churches, it ends with this phrase. If you have an ear to hear, let him hear. And so it's not only for individuals that Jesus wants to warn us and tell us something incredibly important, but it's also to churches. He wants to tell you this is a serious thing. And I want you to listen tonight. And, and really, truthfully, and you probably already figured it out, that the statement is not about whether your ears work. 
Okay? This isn't about, this is not whether we have ears or do they work. It's the question of whether you're using them or not. And whether you're really hearing what he has to say. Have you ever, ladies, been trying to talk to your husband on Sunday afternoon watching football? You're talking to them. And they may even at times glance over and look at you. And you may say something that demands an answer. And they may shake their head. Maybe even verbally say something. But you know they haven't heard a word you said. They're not really hearing you. Your kids are the same way. They're so interested in playing a video game or playing something. Did you hear me? Did you hear me? You have to say it louder. But they're listening. Their ears are open. They're not really hearing, are they? You know, that can happen spiritually in our lives. Scripture, and you know this, places an incredibly high premium on the ability to hear God's voice. Now, I want you to know this. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, is that when everyone can hear his voice physically, but only God's children can hear it spiritually. Do you remember the verses Jesus said in John 10? He says, my sheep, what? I'll hear my voice, and, and they know me. Listen to this, and they follow me. So if you're a sheep and you've heard his voice, you will be a disciple. You are following him. And he says, and they are familiar with the shepherd's voice, and they don't listen to other voices that are contrary to his, but instead they listen to his. So being part and parcel part of being a Christian, of being a disciple, is that when Jesus says something, you hear it. And hearing, always in the Bible, from a Christian standpoint, has to be hearing with the purpose of doing. You know that every Orthodox Jew, including those in Jesus' day, would wake up in the morning and before they would go to bed at night, they would say the Shema, and that's in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, and it starts with this, hear, O Israel, and that's the word Shema. It means to hear. But God didn't say, just listen to what I say. It's listening with the intent to do what he says. And so God puts a huge premium on, and, and you know, and I'm not trying to be cruel, but you know, at times, not even when you get older, but especially as you get older, what do you ha- every once in a while you have to have a he- your hearing checked because it may not be what it used to be. And, and guess what? Every once in a while, like tonight, we need to have a spiritual hearing checkup just to say, are you still hearing what Jesus says about what's most important, about what your life really is mainly about, what his church is really mainly about? And so he wants to say to all of us individually and as a church tonight, if you have ears to hear, you better take what I'm saying tonight incredibly serious. And he's going to put this at the end, as he always does, in Luke 14, the passage I read you, at the end of a very difficult saying. Because you're going to have to be able to have spiritual ears to hear this and want to do it, is basically what he's saying. So it's a very difficult saying, and he's going to tell us about it. So let me frame it out for you, then we're going to unpack it one thing at a time. This is about not being his disciple as much as it is as what does it mean when you can't be his disciple. And you can see that because the phrase, which is only used in this place, in this gospel, and nowhere else in the entire Bible... This is the only time where Jesus says, I have requirements to follow me, and if you don't fulfill them, you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me, which means you don't really know me. Okay? So it says in verse 26 at the end that you cannot be my disciple. See the phrase? Once more in 27. He says, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, 
You cannot be my disciple. And then he bookends our paragraph at the very end of this little text in verse 33. And he says it for a third time because, again, he doesn't want us to miss it. That's how serious he is about this. And for a third time, he says, if you don't renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. So let me start with this tonight. Following Jesus has requirements. It has requirements. And the requirements are difficult. So if you ever heard anyone say to you, Christianity is easy, they've never read the Bible and certainly have never read Jesus. Because Christianity is anything but easy. It's incredibly difficult. It's hard. It's described as a narrow way. And few there be that find it. It's very difficult. And discipleship requires the uncompromising choice of what I call a cruciform life. And we're going to say more about that on the second line. But discipleship is what Jesus is all about. He wants the church to be all about. And he wants all of us to be about. But to understand the things he's going to ask of you tonight, as he asked of the people he was speaking it to, you have to put Luke 14 in the context of this gospel. If you know anything, and I've said this before, and I hope I've said it enough, you'll remember it so when you study Luke that it'll make sense to you. In Luke chapter 9 through 19, when he talks to the Samaritans and they don't want them to come to their village and they want to call down fire from heaven, that whole passage, all the way to Zacchaeus' house in Jericho in chapter 19, commentators call that block in Luke's gospel the travel narrative because in throughout, peppered all throughout those 10 chapters, our little phrases is as he journeyed, as they went on the road, as they were on their way to Jerusalem, and on all throughout there. So everything, every event, every conversation that Jesus does in Luke 9 through 19, you're supposed to see it in light of the cross because that's where he's headed. He's headed to Jerusalem for the passion of dying for our sins on the cross. And so discipleship, we might say, based on that contextual truth, discipleship is meant to be lived in the shadow of the cross. That everything we do and everything Jesus requires of us in following him is all about the cross. And that's why I say cruciform, in the shape of a cross. That's what that word means. That everything about what Jesus asks of us and what he wants us to be as a church and as individual disciples has to do with his cross. So in our text, let me, let me give you the framework other than three cannots. There's two price tags, and each one of them are the phrase, cannot be my discipleship. One in 26 and 27, and the third one in 33. And in between that is two little parables about considering ahead of time what it'll cost you to make the decision to follow Jesus. And so I'm going to say something about it a little bit, that it's not an emotional decision to follow Jesus, to be saved, to become a Christian and thus a disciple, and to give your life to him is not something that should happen overnight in particular. It's not something that should be considered lightly. It's not to be thought of as just a ticket out of hell into heaven. It is a commitment of your entire life. And so tonight, here's the two things we're going to do. It's like a coin, and we're going to flip it over and do one at a time. We're going to consider the cost of following Jesus, the price tag that's on it. And then we're going to flip it over at the end, and we're going to consider what the cost of not following him is. Because a lot of people, you're going to say after I'm done with the first part of the message, Wow! 
Is that what it means to be a disciple? I mean, that's going to cost me just about, and you're going to think about it. Then at the end, I'm going to tell you, well, if you choose not to, let me cost, tell you what it'll cost if you don't. So that's where we're headed. So let me give you the three price tags, 26, 27, 33, and in between, of what it'll cost you to follow Jesus and be his disciple. This is what he requires. First one, you must love Jesus supremely. Look at verse 26, 5, sorry, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, circle that, hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, in the context, verse 25, you run over it because you think it's not important, but there's a lot of people who follow Jesus. Don't ever get the idea that Jesus walked around and most of the time it was the 12 disciples and that was it. There were a bunch of women who followed around with him all the time, who took care of their needs. There were 70 people, 70 people he sent out at one time. There were huge crowds of people. On any given day, you could try to find Jesus, and he would be very difficult to find because there are probably at least 100 to 200 people walking with him from city to city. There's a lot of people. It wasn't just a small group most of the time. He, he was encumbered with such a large crowd of people that 5,000 were there to be fed. He had to go out in the wilderness and desert to get away from people so he could have some quiet time. I mean, that's what his life was. In the text, here's what I think Luke wants you to think. That there's a lot of people that the Bible says accompany him. People who walk around with him. Eventually have meals with him. Talk with him. But there's a big difference from a crowd disciple to a committed disciple. A big difference. There's a big difference from people who walk with Jesus than people who walk like Jesus. Big difference. Big difference. Don't turn there. I just want you to listen to this. Just a page back in chapter 13 of, of Luke's gospel. And I believe it here is in, if I can find it here. I'm not going to find it, am I? Luke 25. Luke 13, 25. Listen to this verse. I get it right here. When once the master of the house is risen, nope, that's not it. I'm sorry, I have the wrong verse. It says, I'm just going to quote it for you if I think I know it from memory. It says, there are disciples who said, we walked around with Jesus in the streets and we ate meals with you and we dined with you and we drank with you. And it says this, and, they, and then Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Here's the idea. You walked around the streets with me. We sat down and had meals together. We talked. We had meals. We drank together. And when you meet, eat a meal with someone or you have that kind of a relationship, they're your friends. Jesus treated them nice. It's, they, they were around him. But they didn't want to be like him. They didn't want to become a disciple. They didn't like to meet their requirements. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. That, to me, as your pastor, is why I preach on this. It's because it's scary. Because we grow up as people in our church here. And if you grew up and your kids grew up here, you're with Jesus a lot. In the sense that you're around church, you're around the Bible. You get lessons, you get messages, you get uh, Bible school, you get... Christian school if you came here. There's a lot. You, so you're around Jesus. You hear him talk. You hear him. You know, you know who he is. You know all about all those things. And in the end of your life, it's possible that he could say, I, I never knew you. I, I mean, I knew of you. 
but I never really knew you. And, and that's the difference between a crowd follower and a committed follower, Jesus would say. And so Jesus' scorecard for what measures success is not about how many crowd followers he has, but how many committed followers he has. And by the way, just so you know, that's ours as well. I hope that one day we had 600 people on a Sunday to fill up this entire auditorium. But that's not how I measure success. If we had 100 committed followers and 600 crowd followers, the 100 would be what we measure by. Jesus, to many people in our day, after three years of ministry, claiming to be the Son of God, had 120 people meeting in an upper room in the book of Acts. After all those years and all those messages and all those miraculous things he did, there's 120 people committed to following him. And most people said, well, that's not anything. It wouldn't even qualify for a big church, much less a mega church. But with those people, Jesus changed the world as we know it is today. And can I tell you, that's what matters. It doesn't matter how much you know so much unless that knowing has turned into doing. So it's not the number of people who sit in the pews. It's the number of people who sit at his feet. That's what matters. What matters most is not the people who hear his word, but hear his word and obey it. So there is a cost. And the first price tag is this. You have to hate your family. Now, it doesn't mean literally hate your family. Because you know all the other scriptures in the Bible about loving your family, your mom and your dad, honoring them, loving your wife, children. You know all that. So what does he mean? Well, there's a number of texts, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, um, Romans 9, 13, Luke 16, 13. There's a number of other texts that make it very clear to understand that a Hebrewism is that hating someone sometimes in the Bible means to love them less. So what is he asking? He says, here's the requirement. If you want to be my disciple, I must be loved supremely. That's why I said you have to love Jesus supremely. In other words, everyone else is minimally a distant second, if not further down the line, when it comes to having Jesus in your life. And can I say this? It's a shock and awe thing because the first century is like the 21st century because family was everything. It was what made everybody, t- it was the most important thing in anybody's life in Israel. And so to say that you have to hate them or love them less than you loved him would have freaked people out. But that's what he says. So he says you have to hate them in comparison to your love for me. Here's another one if you want to cross-reference it. Let me give you the positive side, so to speak. Jesus said, well, you have to hate them. But in another passage, he says, you can't love them more than me. Let me read it for you. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword, a sword that divides. How does he divide people? He wants to see who you really love supremely in the affections of your heart. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. See what he's saying? But how would you know if you're doing that or not? Ready? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Do you see what he's saying? 
He says, if you don't love me supremely and there's anyone that's a rival to the reign I have in your heart, if there's anyone equal or above me, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot love people as much or more than me because that makes you unworthy of me. You cannot be my follower. It's the same language, same meaning. You can't really follow him if he is not supreme in the affections of your heart. So here's what Jesus says. If you want to be my disciple, here's what it could mean. You may lose friends. Because when they start taking second place in your life and Jesus becomes first, they may not want any place in your life. You may disappoint family members. You may be ostracized, spoken about. You may have to break off a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend because they don't know the Lord and you're going this direction and they're going that direction. See? So Jesus says, if you love them more than me, or you don't hate them, it's the same coin, then you are not worthy of me, or you cannot be my disciple. And the little phrase, cannot, is two Greek words put together. You know what they, it means? It's impossible. You don't have the ability. The only way that we can be his disciple and do all that he asks us to do is if he is first. He is our first love. Revelation 2.4 said this to the church in that chapter. He says, you have abandoned the love you had at first. In other words, remember when you first got saved and Jesus was everything and you couldn't get enough of the Bible and you loved him and you were at church and you were excited and nothing could deter you from being around him and you couldn't get enough of him? He says, what happened? What happened? And Jesus says, that's what it takes to be my disciple Earlier in Luke's gospel, and you know the text, I'm sure you're familiar, Luke 9, 57 through 62, Jesus is being approached by people on the road in the travel narrative to Jerusalem. And, and, and these people come up to him and they say, I'll follow wherever you go. And then the next person who comes up to him says, hey, I'll follow you, Jesus, but let me go home and bury my father, my dead. Let me bury the dead. And what does Jesus say? Well, it's a funeral of your dad. Of course you can go as soon as you're done. Come back. No. You know what he says? Let the dead bury the dead. In other words, people who are spiritually dead, let them bury the people who are physically dead, but you come and follow me. So how important is it, discipleship? More important than family and the most important family events in them. Doesn't mean you have to miss them, per se, but you might. You might. And he wants to know, hey, if you had to for my cause, would you? Would you even consider it? He says, but, and he says this, the last guy comes up to him on the road in Luke 9 and says, hey, let me go home and say goodbye to everybody at my house. And he says, if you turn your back and, and, and you can't plow the field and turn your back on the kingdom, he says, if you don't keep going and you turn back to go home, he goes, you can't be my disciple. He goes, once you make the decision to make me the first place, you can't go back. You can't go back, he says. So that's the first thing. Let me ask you this. Do you qualify tonight as a disciple? Would that be characteristic, not perfectly, but patternly in your life? Would you say that, that's, that I love Jesus supremely? Remember those things we talked about? Or is entertainment what I really love? Or is family what I really love? That was the biggest one. And, and maybe tonight that's why we need to hear this. Because whatever my children want, see, you live for your children, and they're the ones that really are the center of your life. And your life revolves around them and everything about them. 
And you're too easy on them, and you, you talk too nice to them, and you don't tell them the things they need to hear. You know why? Because they're your world. Or your spouse is your world. See, Jesus says, no, I'm your world. I'm your world. So the first thing Jesus says, here's the first price tag. You must love Jesus supremely. Secondly, verse 27, you must love Jesus sacrificially. And he uses this language. So if you don't bear your own cross. And at the end of verse 26, he adds, even your own life. And what does it mean? What does it mean to hate your own life? He's going to tell you in the next verse, verse 27. Here's what hating your own life looks like. Taking up your cross. If you don't take up your own cross, you cannot be my disciple. See the cruciformity? That there's always a cross in it. Today, as Christians, we want crossless Christianity. We don't want the nails and the crown of thorns and the persecution. We don't want that stuff. We want it to be comfortable, easy. There's no, there's no risk. I'm certainly not going to ever do anything that's not completely safe. Nor do I want my kids to do anything like that. Can I tell you that? Not of the cross. Not of the cross. Not, we're not to be foolish or presumptuous and take risks just for glory or to be an un, a martyr unnecessarily. But can I tell you this? If you're a follower of Jesus, you may lose your life. And that should be expected. That should be expected. There's a big difference, can I say, between crowd disciples and cross disciples too. A big difference. See, we're great with Jesus having his cross. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We're not so hot about the fact that he gives us our cross and we have to die on that to our sins. We're not excited about those things. If you know anything about the Middle Eastern countries, and especially Israel, it's an honor and shame culture. It means we are, we're about winning everything and losing, and, and that's what matters, but not them. It's honor and shame. They'd rather lose and keep their honor. But not, not in our, that's not how we are, but that's how they are. And to have your, you be shamed, you do something shameful, shames your family, shames your tribe, shames your entire village or city. It is the worst thing you could possibly do. Crucifixion is the number one shameful thing that could ever happen to any individual. And so when Jesus starts doing this talk about, you want to follow me, and without this, you can't follow me, you've you got to take up your cross, that would have turned off a whole bunch of people. Cross was a slave death, and so you, you never were elevated to Roman citizenship if you were Israelite, unless you bought it. And you weren't free, and in, in, in being tortured on a, a cross would have just pointed out to everybody else that you were not nearly anything compared to a Roman and far inferior, and you were just a slave. But beyond that, not just a slave death, it was a shameful death because you were humiliated publicly. Jesus was crucified outside the city on a public road. That's why they put the sign in three languages, because everybody walked. they wanted everybody to know that Jesus was being crucified as a slave for a capital punishment. He was a rebel, a lestai is the term against Rome. And he was crucified naked. And imagine the rabbi that everyone thought was the son of God hanging naked on a cross publicly like you would go down Coozer Road and people would just keep driving by. It wasn't just a slave death or a shameful death. It was a severe death. But you know the strange thing about the Bible? 
I mean, it tells that he had a crown of thorns and they put nails in his feet. And he, they, they tell you all of that. But you know what the bigger emphasis, more than the physical torture of it was? is by far the social and spiritual ramifications. That God forsook him. That he hung on the, spiritually took all of our sin. And then the shame of it all. And what he wants you to know, because this passage in Luke 14 is in the travel narrative, he wants you to know that if you follow him on the road, that road will lead to Calvary. That road will lead not to just his cross, but it could be that it leads to your cross and your public shame. And you might, listen, you might, this is what our teenagers, you might lose your popularity. People may think that you're out of your mind. His parents tried to get him out of a, a teaching time that he was in because they thought that he was literally out of his mind. And people would have heard Jesus say, you want to be my disciple? You better get your own cross. They would have thought that that was lunacy. But that's what Jesus says that's absolutely necessary to become his disciple. Salvation is an oxymoron in some ways because it's both absolutely free and at the same time it will cost you everything. See, it's free because you can't have it by earning it or meriting or working for it. It's by God's grace and mercy alone. But let me tell you this. Once you get the free gift, it's going to cost you everything in your life. You'll never think, you'll never even begin to imagine how much it might cost you. I I read today on the internet that if you want to climb Mount Everest, which I can't even understand, but if you wanted to, um, I don't even like to climb the stairs up to my bedroom at night, but nevertheless... But if you want to climb Mount Everest, it'll cost the average person $45,000, which really puts it on the low bucket list for me. Forty-five. Some people go crazy and have spent $160,000 to climb Mount Everest. Now li- listen to this, though. What if I told you that I have $45,000? Number one, you wouldn't believe it. But if I did, and I told you I'm going to pay your way, and you can climb Mount Everest for free, it won't cost you anything. That really wouldn't be true. You know why? It wouldn't cost you any money, but what would it cost you? Well, number one, you can't go unless you 12 to 18 months ahead of time go through their training. So you have to put 12 to 18 months of your life into it, and you have to be in the best shape of your life. And then one of the first things they tell you after you get in shape and complete all the training is that there's this percentage of a chance that you will lose your life on the mountain and never come back. And guess how many people are deterred by that? Next to none. Now, here's my thought. I read that article today. They go, and they think that and spend that and work that hard, risk their life to climb to a top of a mountain. But what about God's people? What about God? God gave us the greatest gift of all absolutely free, and it doesn't cost you anything. But he says this, but when you climb the Everest, when you live for me and follow me, and be my, it's going to cost you everything. And you know how many people that detours? According to the Gallup poll, 91%. So there's no such thing in Jesus' mind of low-risk, low-cost discipleship. You won't find it on sale at the store. There are no bargains, and they won't be cutting the prices anytime soon. And Jesus says, because that's true, here's the two stories I want to tell you. And here's what he says. If, if you're, one's a building story and one's a battling story. He says, nobody who's going to build a tower doesn't sit down first. Here's what he says. Sits down first, and, and then it says, counts the cost. 
and it means a calculator. So here's what he says. Before you sign up to follow me, get your discipleship calculator out, and I want you here, I'm going to talk to you, and here's all the things that could happen to you. Write them all down, and I want you to think about these are what you might have to happen. This is what you might lose. You're going to have to give this up, and I might take this from you, and then you want to say yes or no. Because nobody plans, right? Nobody plans to go on a vacation and says, hey, let's go to Hawaii. Well, what do you think? I don't know if we can afford that. Who cares? Let's just go. How much are the plane tickets? What about the hotel? What are we going to eat? We're going to get a drive. We'll figure that out when we get there. It could be tens of thousands of dollars. Um, we'll, we'll make it up when we get there. Well, if you do that, it's going to be trouble. But next to nobody does that, right? And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, it's this serious that you should sit down. You should sit down and get your discipleship life calculator out. And you should say, here's what Jesus is asking. Here's what I'm presently doing. Am I willing to exchange all of that? And then he says, well, let me tell you another battling illustration. If you're going to go to war and you're outnumbered and you have 10,000, they have 20,000, he says, who doesn't sit down? What king doesn't sit down first? Listen to this. And he uses this word, and deliberate. And almost every time the word deliberate is used in the New Testament, it means to make plans. In other words, if you're going to fight someone and you know it's going to be an uphill battle and you, a good chance you're not going to win or it's going to be really hard, then you're going to make plans. And if you, your plans are, hey, if I see this guy has got as many as I think he has or more than before he ever gets here, my plan is this. Let's make peace before he wipes us out. In other words, I'm making a plan. I'm going to think down the road a little bit. And when, if this happens, this happens. So when you think down the road, he says, listen, think down the road about what I'm saying about following me. Because here's what happens. People say up front, yeah, I'll do it. And they get down the road and they say, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I don't want to do that. So Jesus says to the rich young ruler, same gospel, chapter 18, he says, I want you to go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the guy walks away. You know why? Because he, he got the discipleship calculator out. He said, I'm so rich, I can't do that. And he went away sorrowful. He couldn't do it. He looked down the road and says, I can't trade that out. It's incredibly unfortunate, perhaps for him eternally unfortunate, but at least the guy was honest. I can't do it. I, I, I'm just not willing to do it. I won't trade it off. I've talked to so many people all the time. They get saved. They're so excited about it. They've made a decision. And I, tell, you know, and I don't spring it on them right away. But not too far down the road, I say, hey, you know, you're living together with him. <laughs> you can't do it. What? But I love him. Yeah, I know. But you've got to love Jesus more. So we're going to figure out a way for you to move out. Move out? Yeah, move out. They didn't think that apart down the road. You know, you know, I followed Jesus. I remember Justin. Justin, black, got saved. I had breakfast with him this last week. And I told, when Justin got saved at Mosaic, I remember in the, in the auditorium, no one else, but he, you know what he said? He goes, oh, yeah. I go, well, you know what? You can't sell drugs anymore. You know that, right? Yeah. No, I mean, really, you can't sell drugs anymore. You cannot be violent anymore. You can't, right? And so he, people started being violent to him and trying to get him because he wasn't doing those things anymore. But I, I told him up front, I said, this is, a, this is a decision so you can go to heaven and keep living how you're living. 
But see, you, I, I wanted to look down the road. And Jesus says, listen, here's the second price tag. You've got to love me sacrificially. There will be a cross involved. John Mark didn't look at the, down the road, and he turned back. Judas certainly didn't look down the road, and he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Demas has forsaken me, Paul says, having loved this present world. Peter denied Jesus three times because he didn't realize that night what it was going to cost him. So Jesus says, if you don't count the cost, you're going to pay the cost, truthfully. So here's the first two, Jesus says. Here's the first two price tags. You're going to love me supremely. You're going to love me sacrificially. Think through it. And then lastly, verse 33, he says, whoever, I'm sorry, go back to Luke chapter 14. I'm in Matthew. That would not help. Luke 14, he says in verse 33, so therefore, if any of you who does not renounce, the word renounce means to take leave of, and you know what it's translated a few times, and I I quoted one already, Luke 9, chapter 9, verse 61, memory says, Jesus, let me go home and say goodbye to my family, that's this word. To renounce means say goodbye, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. Here's what Jesus says. This is what you do in your life. You get saved, you look at your life, and you say, your old life that Jesus wasn't in charge of, and you say, goodbye. I'm leaving. Say goodbye. Wave at it, because you won't be back. You won't be back. And Jesus says, see, that's what it means. Say goodbye to the way you used to think about money and how you spend it. Say goodbye to your freedom that you thought you had. Say goodbye to possible safety and comfort and a retirement. Say goodbye to it. Say goodbye to the immoral lifestyle and the pleasures that you indulged in and the ignoring of God most every day. Say goodbye to that, he says, if you really want to be... Because without it, you cannot be, third time. You cannot be. See, Jesus' disciples have, and this is the third point, you must love Jesus, and I said this, singularly, and by that I mean this, a singular focus. Renounce all, see the word all? Everything else has, is, not, is negotiable. Jesus is the only non-negotiable in your life. So what would be the cost of not following him? The last two verses almost seem like they might be ill-fitted for this text that we're in. But he says, salt is good. But though salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's of no use, he says. See, let me tell it to you this way. Singular disciples are salty disciples. You understand that? Singular disciples are salty. When your life is focused, you have a singular focus, I'm this committed and devoted to Jesus, he's my everything, he is first in my life, and everything else, I love my wife, my children, but not anywhere compared, this is, he, I take up my cross, I'm willing to make the sacrifices. When my focus is singular like that, then I'm salty. That's when my life has influence. That's when I start impacting others. That's when I'm ready to disciple people. Because then they can become more like Jesus because they see him in me. And that's when my friends at work will see the difference in how I work and how I talk and how I live. And they'll understand the gospel. And maybe they'd come to church. And maybe you'd have the privilege this year of leading someone to Christ. 
but you got to be salty. But see, if you're not renouncing those things and you're not have a singular focus, guess what? You're not salty anymore. You don't have any impact because when people look at you, they see themselves. That there's hardly any difference between you and them other than the fact that you go to church a lot and they don't. That you like hanging around Jesus, but you're not like him. There's no influence in that. There's no saltiness in that. And you know what Jesus says? Strong. That's why he said, if you have ears to hear, listen, it's pretty strong. He says, you know what that kind of disciple's worth? And I call it the disposable disciple. You know why? Because he says it's not even good. This is strong. It's not even good for the manure pile. You know what I do with it? I throw it out. Every time Jesus uses that verb in Luke, it's about throwing something in a fire, throwing something in prison, throwing it out in hell. Remember when he said, hey, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better to you, what? To be throwing your eye out than to be thrown into hell, same verb. So he's not just saying, hey, this is, you're not, you're, you need to, your back's in a little bit. No, he says, you know what? You're a disposable. You're not really one of mine. You're not a disciple that I could ever use. You're not, your life's not impacting. You're not living out the purpose of a disciple. It's no use, he says. And it's the only thing I can think about doing with it is throwing it out. That's the cost. I, I would hate to see I would hate to see anyone at Faith Baptist Church be considered by God or Jesus as a disposable disciple, that there's really no purpose in it, there's no impact in it, that there's no usefulness in it, and it's just really worth throwing, throwing out. I, I pray to God that would never be any of our cases. But Jesus says there are requirements, and they're not easy, and you cannot be my disciple unless you have ears to hear these things and are willing to do them. So let me ask you one more time. See, it's not a question tonight of whether you are a disciple if you're a Christian. The question is, what kind of disciple are you? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, help us. They are very strong words from our Lord tonight. But we believe they're inspired. We believe he was serious about what he said. And Father, we pray tonight for all of us that we would sit back, take some evaluation in our lives, sit down, count the cost, deliberate over your word and in prayer what it's going to take for us to be the disciples that you want us to be. What that's going to mean for our church. And not just that we be disciples, but that we make them. Father, we need your help. For some of us, it's, it's a long way off. For some of us, maybe even closer, maybe around the corner. But wherever we are, we need to help and love each other to follow Jesus. Help us to do that the more for your glory alone. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.